0: Evidence and answers. Dr. Oz Guinness states we are approaching the climax of the attempted takeover by a progressive secularism that seeks to replace our Judeo-Christian faith. How can we have the confidence in the gospel in these dark times? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Zucran. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear this message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Guinness with part one of his message entitled Renaissance, Confidence in the Gospel, No Matter How Dark the Times.
1: What a delight to be here. This is my first time in Hawaii, so I'm especially delighted to be here. I must admit, I've been invited before, but I always questioned my own motives for why I was going to (laughs) go. Because coming from Europe, Hawaii is the ultimate vacation place short of heaven. The Caribbean for us is reachable, but Hawaii, wow. So I always felt bad about thinking of coming here, but Pat's invitation was so extraordinary, I couldn't say no to it. I'm delighted to... See the interest in apologetics you have. Some years ago, I was at Stanford, and a student asked me a question I'd never been asked before. If you could be a member of any generation except the one you were born in, which one would you choose? As Denny said, I was born in China, I know some of the great Chinese dynasties. I love the England of the 18th century of William Pitt, William Wilberforce, and, of course, your founding father's generation is quite extraordinary. I'm a great admirer of the Athens of Pericles and other times. All these things flash through your mind in half a second, but what I said was I would love to be a member, talking to the students, of your generation. Why? Because those of you who are under 30, as Denny said, you're often described as the crunch generation in the sense that in our global era, many of the big issues of our world are converging to create a crunch which will require an answer in your adulthood. If your generation answers them well, humanity has the prospect of calm sailing. If you answer them badly or through drift, don't answer them at all, humanity will truly be in trouble. We're an extraordinary generation, the crunch generation. And among the many things, as I'll examine, we need to be able to articulate how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the best news ever, truly has answers when so many of the other philosophies, religions, worldviews simply don't. I want to change things tonight and actually put first the talk that's number five and last in your notebooks. Apologies for the muddling you over that. But I want to raise the question, how can we have confidence in the gospel? I have never met so many Christians in America, fearful, alarmist, despondent as today. And the sad fact is that many of them have lost confidence practically in the gospel and certainly in the art of defending the gospel, which is apologetics, which all too often is a kind of minority interest. The year before Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill gave two of his most famous speeches before the Battle of Britain, which was an aerial battle, which was one of the turning points in World War II. The one before was the most famous of all, ending in the famous words, "This." was their finest hour. But in that speech, Churchill said a couple of sentences nobody noticed at the time, but after the war, these sentences set off a huge debate and discussion among Christian thinkers. What Churchill said was this, the Battle of Britain is about to begin. On the outcome of this battle depends the future of Christian civilization. And after the war, a whole number of thinkers, including T.S. Eliot many others, they raised the question, were the victors in World War II really that Christian? What did it mean for any civilizational culture to call itself Christian? And what were the prospects of restoring a Christian culture and a Christian civilization in the West today? This is the 1940s. Seventy years later... You can look back on that discussion and see how actually it comes close to many of the issues in America today, because we're approaching the climax of the attempted takeover by a progressive secularism, which claims to be now the working faith of our Western world and to replace the Jewish and Christian faiths, which have always been the working faith of the Western world. Now, I'm not going into that in great depth in this talk. But I want to raise the question, how can we have confidence in the gospel despite the darkness of the present hour? Let me set out a number of propositions to you. First, think in the back of your mind of the grand tasks facing the church in the global era. There are three. First, we have to prepare the global south. What do I mean? If you look at the whole world, the gospel is not doing very well. Let's say not the gospel. The church is not doing well in the West, in the advanced modern world. But the gospel is exploding in the global south. You all know the story. Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, where I happen to be born in north-central China, is the epicenter of the fastest growth of the Christian church in 2,000 years. And what's happening under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in many parts of the world is extraordinary. You know the stories. They are true, they're encouraging, they're inspiring. But many people don't add the sting in the tail. Most of the global south is pre-modern. And what has done in much of the church in the west is it's caving in to the challenges of our advanced modern world. In other words, their are challenges coming. You can see, for instance, take China. Christians have survived one of the most cruel, brutal, systematic persecutions ever with courage and faithfulness that puts us to shame in other parts of the world. And yet, when they go from the country, say, to big cities like Shanghai, more people are falling away under the conditions where there's no persecution like that today. Because in some ways, it's harder to survive... The challenges of big-city living than it is to survive persecution now we in the West have got to say to them don't do what we did don't do what we did we caved in when we were the dominant faith in the West don't do what we did and learn from our mistakes the second grand task we've got to win back our Western world for Jesus Now, when I say that, people think of some cultural crusade or cultural. I don't mean that at all. I mean winning people to our Lord one by one by one as salt and light so they affect culture. Now, think for a minute. If you look at our Western world, which the U.S. certainly is part of, we're living at the end of two earlier missions to the West. The first mission to the West is the conversion of Rome an incredible thing under the Holy Spirit. Three centuries, and the faith of the people the Romans would have dismissed as a bunch of provincial Galileans, their faith replaced the faith of mighty Rome. But when Rome fell in the West, not the Eastern world, in the West, the Western Church largely fell too, and the Dark Ages were very dark. War, plague, violence, tribalism, you name it. The second mission to the West is not so well known. The conversion of the barbarian kingdoms. 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th century. Long time. And I'm proud coming from Ireland to say that was our one and only great hour. When missionaries sail out of Ireland, little flimsy coracles down to France, and you can follow the trail of Celtic crosses all the way across France, all across Switzerland, down as far as northern Italy. Bringing the gospel and the scriptures and education and literacy and sowing the seeds of what became, for better or worse, Christendom. We're living at the end of that second great mission to the West, the Twilight Era. But rather than being depressed and saying it's all over, and as the sun goes to the West, so the gospel's going and it's gone from us today, as many people are saying, what nonsense! We should be saying, let's win back our Western world again for a third time under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is what we're about this weekend. an evangelism and apologetics together, as we see in the Scriptures. The third task is to contribute to the human future. I won't say much about that. But in this crunch generation with these huge issues arising for humankind, Many of the other religions and philosophies simply don't have answers. But we can't stop by letting Jesus is the answer be a cliche. We've gotta take it out and demonstrate it so that the gospel really is the answer that leads the world forward. Now, bear those three great tasks in the back of your mind. I wanna focus now onwards more on our Western world, the advanced modern world. Secondly then, Think of the surprising relationship of the gospel to culture and civilization. Now, let me define what I'm talking about. What is a culture? You can be very complicated, but equally simple. A culture is a way of life lived in common. Talk about a surfing culture, or a teenage culture, or the French culture, or the Chinese culture, a way of life lived in common. And if you think it's not surprising, Jesus called us to himself to know and trust and love him and his Father. But the second thing he called us to was to not learn 10 doctrines, no, live his way. And we're all called as individuals, but as coming as individuals, but then we come into the church, the community of the followers of Jesus, and we live his way, it's salty. It's light-bearing. What happens? It creates a culture. And you can see in the early church, again and again, the pagans were impressed by what they saw of the love, the compassion, and many, many other things of the Christian culture. The way of Jesus lived in common together. What's a civilization? Again, you can be far too complicated. Let's be simple. A civilization is a culture... With sufficient extension, it spreads widely enough. It's not just a little village. It lasts long enough, and above all, it rises high enough. It achieves excellence in some areas. It might be military or scientific or philosophical or whatever, but we admire it as a civilization. Now, what on earth has that got to do with the gospel? If you think for a minute, the gospel is not necessary for civilization. If you take most of the great civilizations in history, they didn't know the name of Jesus, they didn't have the scriptures, and yet in one way or the other, they were great. Now we know why. They were made in the image of God, even though they didn't know God. And so they were capable of many great things in many directions. But the gospel wasn't necessary in that sense that they needed to know it. But you could go further and say, the gospel and culture looks and... Unlikely relationship. Jesus never talked about culture. He renounced his force. He didn't talk about half the things are in our daily newspapers or television screens. And yet, and yet, it's undeniable that the teaching of Jesus and the whole of the Scriptures is the most dominant, decisive idea that's made our Western culture. We owe a lot to the Greeks. You can think of all the things we owe to the Greeks. Democracy, philosophy, science, various things. We owe a lot to the Romans, especially the art of governance. Go to Capitol Hill, and you see the Roman influence all over the place. But think of the gifts of the gospel. For example, our culture of giving and caring and philanthropy. No other civilization has anything like it. Or take... The culture of reform movements, the banning of infanticide, the end of the gladiatorial games, Bartholomew Las Casas standing against the conquistadores, William Wilberforce against slavery, all the way down to Martin Luther King, all the great reforms of our Western world until very recently were inspired by faith in Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. No other culture has anything like it. Or take the third one, the rise of the universities. Yes, we admire Plato's Academy or whatever. But the universities, one of the most powerful modern institutions, came from where? The cathedral schools, Bologna, Sorbonne, Oxford, and so on. Fourthly, the rise of modern science. We owe ancient science to the Greeks. And it's true that the Muslims kept it alive through... Greek writings that were handed on to them by Christians whom often they slaughtered, but they did keep it alive and they achieved a certain amount in the medieval times. But modern science, the 17th century, the matrix, the Reformation. And then, of course, fifthly, the human rights revolution. It didn't come from the Enlightenment. It came from the glory of the fact that humans had an inalienable precious dignity, because they were made in the image of God. And human rights are anchored in a biblical understanding of humanity, not in the Enlightenment, not in secularism. And the last, and this is the one that very few people think about, is the Jewish notion of covenant. You say, what's that got to do with us? Did you know that covenant, the idea, jumped from the Old Testament, especially Exodus and Deuteronomy, to the Reformation, the Radical Reformation, Switzerland, Holland, Scotland, the English Puritans. And then, of course, where did it jump? To New England. Now, the covenant, which was there in churches, in marriages, in townships, in states, the world's oldest surviving constitution is Massachusetts, and it's riddled with the word Covenant and your American Constitution 1787 is a secularized national form of covenant and it was covenant which brought faith and freedom together again and gave rise to many of our freedoms and points of justice we take for granted. They did not come from Athens. It certainly didn't come from Rome. It came from the Old Testament. These are the gifts of the gospel that have shaped our Western civilization, but of course, the roots are being cut today, and we're in a cut flower civilization. Thirdly, think through with me the secret of the dynamic power of the gospel. What is it that when the followers of Jesus live the gospel together, it becomes powerful in culture and in history? Why? Well, some Christians don't even like the question. They say, what's well, it's impertinent. Of course, the power is God's power. Obviously, it is. But we see in the scriptures, our Lord is sovereign, but we are, as it were, junior partners. We're co-creators, as C.S. Lewis puts it. So how is it that when the church lives the gospel, it does become inevitably powerful in history and culture? Several people have had a crack at that one. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. There's something unique about the Christian faith. It holds two things together, which no other faith quite does. The Christian faith, as Lewis says, is world-affirming and world-denying. Now, some faiths are world-affirming. Ancient Confucianism affirms this world. Secular humanism affirms this world. After all, they've only got this world. They didn't affirm this, they're in trouble. Nothing else. They do affirm this world. But then there are other faiths that are world-denying supremely Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion of renunciation and withdrawal. It's been described as the most gigantic no to human aspirations ever delivered. But Lewis points out the Christian faith is both, not either or, but both. We know the world is good because of creation. Good and very good, the Lord says. And despite the fall, it's still good, although in ruins in many places. But we affirm it. So we appreciate the arts, and we appreciate many of the glories of human life. But the Christian faith is also well-denying. We have festivals, and we have fasts. We have Christmas and Easter. We also have Good Friday, and before it, Lent and we have sacrifice as well as joy. And Lewis says it's that combination of the world affirming and the world denying together that gives the Christian faith this incredible power in culture. But most people would say the even deeper explanation is St. Augustine's. Now think of St. Augustine. He lives as Rome falls. 800 years of Roman dominance... And Augustine has the privilege to be the leader of the church at a time, well, in his lifetime, the Visigoths sacked Rome. And when he was dying, the Goths were at the gates of Carthage, where he lived in North Africa. So he has to give his people a reason for hope and give an answer to the Romans who are blaming Christians. You may know what happened. Rome fell, and all the pagans said, See, the Christian God is too weak. You've got to go back to our gods, the Roman gods. They were stern and masculine, and you could run an empire with these gods. But all this stuff about mercy and forgiveness and compassion, obviously the empire's gone soft. And so they had this devastating critique. It was all laid at the feet of the church. But that was only half the problem. Amazingly, although not very long before, The emperors had been persecuting Christians, Diocletian in 325. But then in 380, when Rome was declared to be officially Christian, what happened? Many Christians baptized the gospel into Rome. And the idea that as Rome spread, so the gospel would spread. So when Rome collapsed, they were demoralized. Now they should never have done that. But Augustine answers both of them. And he gives this great picture of what he calls in his book the city of God, two cities. One city is dedicated to the human self. The love of the self produces the city of man, typified by Babylon or in his time by Rome. The other city, at its heart, has a love for God. And out of that grows a humanity that lives in the city of God typified by Jerusalem and the coming Jerusalem. But here's his point, and he goes back to our Lord. Our Lord calls us to be, you know, well, in the world, but not of the world. So Augustine says the city of God is living in the city of man. Ultimately, they're completely contradictory, but immediately they're all tangled together. And we who follow of Jesus are resident aliens. This city of man is not our home. Hawaii is not your ultimate home. America is not your ultimate home. The earth is not our ultimate home. We are resident aliens. In it, but not of it. Now, that little in but not of, very easy to say. You've heard speakers, I've just done it. You've heard preachers, many people saying that. You could add to it. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, coming out of the Exodus, they're called by the Lord to plunder the Egyptian gold. And a few chapters later, they're condemned for setting up a golden calf. Plunder the gold, but no golden calf. In, but not of. Paul says, be not conformed, but transformed. Now you can see, there's a balance there. There's a tension there. The Hartford statement says... We are against the world for the world. Now, these things are very easy to say. In, not of. Not conformed, transformed. Plunder the gold, no golden cloth Against the world, for the world. Now, the trouble is, it's a nice little way of saying it, but people hear it as if saying so makes it so. It doesn't. We've got to live it so. Now, think for a minute. In but not all. There are two extremes we know are wrong. One extreme, obviously, is not to be in it. To be so otherworldly, we no earthly use. Sadly, there are many Christians like that still.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence & Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence & Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You will find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence & Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.